2040, the year by which Governor Andrew Cuomo wants New York's electric sector to go entirely green. That is, to reduce carbon dioxide emissions in that sector to zero. This is the key new goal announced by the governor as part of the state's Green New Deal, and it follows other ambitious environmental targets previously established in the state's energy plan and REV, reforming the energy vision. These prior plans also set targets to achieve a 40% reduction in greenhouse gases across all sectors of the economy by 2030, an 80% reduction by 2050, and to have 50% of electric energy produced by renewables by 2030. Are any of these targets realistic? Is New York State on pace to meet them? And what will it cost to do so? And how green is New York State anyway? We've got a ton of data points in our first ever episode on energy policy. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Doulis from the CBC. Thanks so much for joining us. As Maria said, we're very excited about an episode on energy policy. The Green New Deal, renewable energy, all these things are big topics of discussion in New York and nationally. We're looking forward to digging in today with an expert on the subject. Before we get to that conversation, just quickly, if you've missed any of our prior episodes, you should find those in your podcast streams at What's the Data Point or at the Gotham Gazette or CBC websites. You can give us feedback. You can find our email addresses, of course, but also Twitter is always easy. I'm at TweetBenMax and Maria is at Maria Doulis. Let us know what you think of certain episodes, ideas for topics and guests for the future. All feedback is welcome, but be gentle. Uh, But today, we are digging into energy policy and very much looking forward to this conversation as Maria helped set the stage with several data points there. And today's guest is Seth Hulkauer, Principal of Strategic Energy Advisory Services. And Seth is an expert on energy policy who was recently commissioned to do some research for CBC for a conference on the most important fiscal and economic issues facing New York that was held in December. His presentation is available online at the CBC website, and the panel discussion from the event on energy will also follow this discussion as the next episode in your podcast stream if you really want to dig in. But we're going to have a really great discussion with Seth here. Seth, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. So before we talk about where New York is right now, where it's heading, a lot of key information just tell us, tell listeners a little bit about your background. Sure. And, and first, Ben, I'd like to thank you and Maria for inviting me on to talk about this. I'm very excited to be here today. My whole career has been in the energy industry. I have uh, started off designing and building power plants and transmission networks. I was developing power plants overseas in China, Greece, Morocco, India, Costa Rica. I followed my international work by staying close to home and working on a local project, managing first the takeover of Lilco, by the Long Island Power Authority, and then I stayed as the Chief Operating Officer of LIPA for uh, almost 10 years. Since leaving LIPA, I've been consulting, and now I get to consult on great projects like this one for the CBC. Very good. Wow, I feel like I have 15 questions I want to ask you about your career, but we'll stick to the the topic at hand here. Um, So for those that are not as familiar with energy policy, um, maybe a brief overview about how the state gets its energy and uses it? Sure. New York is blessed with the largest hydropower resources this side of the Rockies, but otherwise we import all our energy. Over a third of the state's energy is natural gas, 
and a third is petroleum products. The biggest difference between the U New York and the rest of the U.S. is that there's almost no coal in the mix. New York has less than one-tenth of its, en gets one -tenth of its energy from coal. In the U.S., the average is 14%. So well, what makes up the difference in New York? In New York, the big difference is made up by natural gas. And is that something that just happened because of New York's natural resources? Was that a policy decision? How did, how did we was, get there? It was largely driven by policy matters and also by economics. Um, New York made a conscious decision to move away from coal. Uh, this was one of the goals that uh, Governor Cuomo had announced several years ago, and they followed through on it, and the coal plants have been shut down. But we're seeing coal going down uh, in usage across the country because natural gas prices have come down so much um, with new natural gas supplies, largely the result of fracking across the country, that uh, that it's all being driven down. So coal really can't compete in New York State. And just to stick with that for a second, the governor obviously very uh, famously has banned fracking, put a ban on fracking in the state, but New York still relies on natural gas. So does that mean a lot of the natural gas New York is using is fracked gas from other states? So nat natural gas is a national market. It's connected by a pipeline system. And so if the price goes down in neighboring states, we're going to see the benefit of it in New York as well. And yes, most of that gas is being imported. A large share of the natural gas that is burned in New York actually comes from Pennsylvania. Right. So the shift to natural gas from coal has made New York more green, right? It's been part of the story of how New York has achieved some reductions. How green is New York relative to, say, other states? So New York is extremely green compared to the rest of the country. It actually is the uh, has the lowest greenhouse gas emissions per capita of any state in the country. And you know, uh, there, there are some close competitors. California is nearby, but New York is really way ahead of the rest of the country. The, the average for the country is about uh, 14 tons per person, and in New York it's, it's eight and a half. So it's a significant edge against uh, the rest of the country. So when we talk about going green, I mean, is it universally accepted or is it, you know, the the experts like yourself pretty much all agree that this is definitively, you know, this is where we should be heading. When we talk about how green is New York in terms of its energy, is this just an assumption that going more and more green is definitely the right way to go? Um, it's, it's a consensus almost everywhere. There's a small pocket in Washington, D.C. that doesn't yes. <laughs> share that consensus. Right. But getting, getting more green, is a, it's a national, it's a global imperative. And how do you define, defi I mean, what is, define what it means to go, go green. I mean, how, how do you capture that for a, a layperson like myself? It is, it is cutting the amount of greenhouse gases. It's, so it's not just carbon, it's also methane. Um, there are other uh, gases that also contribute, and, and there's... There are whole equations of converting different gases to a CO2 equivalent. And the way that we measure it is uh, millions of metric tons of CO2 equivalent. So methane actually is 100 times more potent than, uh, than carbon dioxide. But methane is a small contributor. Methane also doesn't last as long in the environment. But um, So cutting each of these gases makes a difference. CO2 is 80% is of the 
global inventory of uh, greenhouse gases. And the ideal is to replace it with what? Well, the ideal is to cut the production of it. The, the, the biggest way to cut it globally is to reduce the amount of uh, coal that's being burned. There's a lot of coal that's being burned in China and India. Those are, and, and China at this point is the largest uh, producer of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and I don't know what the rate is now, but at, at one point, China was opening up a new coal plant uh, about every five to seven days. So they were astounding. adding a huge inventory uh, to that. But I mean, I think so part of what you're saying speaks to how best to tackle this problem, because on the one hand, being green, um, you know, it's a good thing to do for quality of life and the environment, you know, greener states can have a compet, you know, it's important for the state's competitiveness in that respect. Right. Yet at the same time, how much can New York do on its own? I think one thing that was striking about Seth's research, and I really encourage everyone to go to the CBC website and see his PowerPoint is that, you know, New York has achieved some greenhouse reduction, um, and yet that was wiped out by what other states like Texas have done, not to speak of, you know, what's going on in China and these other states that were really rapidly industrializing in not the greenest way possible. So, like, the, you know, this is one... So the, the question for me, right, is, like, the global solution is best. We see that crumbling. We've seen, you know, the Paris Accords sort of come apart with the U.S., yet states are still saying, no, this is important and we want to do it, but how much can states do on their right. own? Right. And, and, you know, and mentioning Texas is an important point. Texas produces uh, over three times as much greenhouse gases as New York State, and in the period from 1990 to 2015... Texas actually increased its production. A lot of that is related to all the frack natural gas that's coming out of Texas now. Um, the, the interesting thing to look at it actually is that uh, Pennsylvania and Ohio, which have been two uh, heavy greenhouse gas states, have actually cut their emissions. And that's largely, again, because of the natural gas. So they, they've retired coal plants and they've started to burn natural gas there instead. So some states are making... A difference, but generally, but the U.S. as a whole, from '90 to 2015, has gone up by seven percent in its greenhouse gas emissions. Now, from what year? Sorry, from from, from 1990, and, and 1990 yeah. is an important point to uh, pin everything to because that that's the year that the Paris Accords use as the benchmark. So when we talk about cutting greenhouse gases by 40 percent by 2030 and 80 percent by 2050. In New York, that's because the the eighty percent by twenty fifty is the goal set by the by the Paris Accord. Um, I, I also will use twenty fifteen as sort of an endpoint for a lot of the analysis here because that turns out to be a year where I've got uh, common data available from both New York State and from the U.S. federal government. So if you're asking, gee, you know, it's twenty nineteen, why why aren't we talking about you know what the numbers are? at least for the end of 2018, the answer is it takes a little while for all the agencies to compile the data and do the analysis. And we, we, oh, go ahead. We jumped ahead a little bit here. I want to come back to New York and, you know, we talked about some of where energy is coming from and, and how to get more green, but I want to talk a little bit more about consumption and where it's going and how it's being used. But just to finish, at least for me, one thought on what you were just saying, in a more green or an ideally green um, society, economy, world, state, um, how big of a 
factor is natural gas. I mean, is is, is it okay if natural gas is fifty percent, seventy percent of the energy in a in the future? I guess the, the question becomes, you know, it, it becomes a local question, which is, you know, if if we saw China and India and a lot of the developing world uh, moving away from coal and moving to natural gas, we'd see a huge change um, in in global emissions levels. I don't know whether that gets us down to a point where we don't need to make any further changes in the U.S. And if you if the U.S. could just shift to natural gas, um, look, there, there's also an argument for continuing to operate nuclear plants in this country. And there are folks who are trying to build uh, new nuclear plants, some based on sort of traditional design and and a few projects that are working on advanced uh, reactor designs. Right, I was going to ask about nuclear. So, at some point in here. the hierarchy, yeah. just for people who don't know, in the hierarchy of sort of green sources, right, coal is by far the dirtiest. Right. Natural gas, much cleaner than coal, but, you know, the cleanest are the renewables, so solar, wind, hydro. Yes. And then nuclear is between well, natural gas and the renewables, but closer to the renewables. Well, nu- nuclear produces... No, no direct greenhouse gases. You know, if you if you look at the whole value stream, you can you might be able to attribute trucks and people who drive to the power plant for that. But but nuclear essentially is a zero greenhouse gas source, so it's it's as clean as the renewables. Okay, very important from point from a greenhouse gas perspective. Mm-hmm. Very and what point. are what are the cr- criticisms and the issues that people have with nuclear? The uh, that this is another podcast, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. So, well, this so is what happens when it's your first yeah. on a topic. You're like trying to get in. Um, the, the the concerns with nuclear are um, uh, the the fear of a of a nuclear accident, something like a Three Mile Island or a Chernobyl, uh, and then the concerns uh, after that are what to do with the nuclear waste, the waste right. and. Okay. There, there are answers to those. I, I, I don't think we have time to go into right. that. Okay. So, so, so let's come back to New York. Right. So we've got the sources on one side. So people, I think, now that's pretty good understanding of where we get our energy from. What about on the consumption side? Um, what, what sectors are using the most energy, and how does that differ from other states? Sure. Um, so on, on the consumption side, we sort of break the, the usage into four major categories. Residential commercial, industrial, and transportation. Uh, the big differences for New York are starting with industrial. Nationally, 32% of energy goes to industrial use. In New York, it's only 7%. So we, we are not an industrial energy user, which suggests we're also not an, an industrial producer. Um, the other big difference is that nationally, 29% of energy goes to transportation, but in New York, it's almost 40%. So so what you're seeing is a fundamental structural difference between the New York economy and the, and the U.S. economy, which is we're not a manufacturing economy, we're a service economy um, here, and we have a lot of transportation that has to do with shipping and commuting. So let's break that down in New York, I guess, a little bit more. We know it's been fairly well documented that 
the industrial sector in New York has been diminishing for a long time. That's obviously part of the discussion around the New York economy, diversification, certainly upstate areas, um, and population loss in New York and some of those other things. We won't go into all that. But in terms of the other side, the transportation and, and use being more than the national average, what is that attributed to? How much people are... So it, it is how much people are traveling to get to work. And, and the transportation numbers could be a lot higher if we didn't have such an efficient public transportation network in the downstate uh, area. But people travel long distances and... and um, but, you know, I mean, the, the, what's amazing is when I talk to people from uh, outside New York, you know, they, they'll have commutes of 15 or 20 minutes. People who live in New York City don't think anything of a half an hour or 45 minutes right. That's right. to get to work. Um, so people are traveling longer distances. You know, in a lot of cases, they're, you know, we've got huge subway ridership, although it's interesting that ridership is down. At, at a time when New York City's population is going up, which is also another that. episode. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just on that, the the energy that the subway system uses. Well, I guess we should also say, and the bus system, mm -hmm. that's accounted for here, right? I mean, e yeah. even if it's an efficient use of energy for right. the subway system, it's still a significant use of energy. Absolutely, it, it is, and I, I don't know actually how much of the state's energy goes to just power the. The MTA, uh, that would sort of be an interesting yeah. issue to look at. So we opened up the episode by talking about, you know, this new goal that the governor has set, which is even more ambitious than the prior goals, um, which were 40% reduction by 2030, 80% by 2050, again, pegging to what, to the Paris, the Paris Accords. Um, Governor wants to go further now, but yeah, let's talk about the goals a little bit. You know, how, how, you know, was New York on pace to make it? How realistic is it? Would we have gotten there? And of course, you know, the question to kind of loop back to something I mentioned earlier is this is important. It's important for the state to do, but, you know, one, how much can New York do alone in the scheme of things? And two, at what cost? And is that cost worth it if what we are accomplishing in New York is essentially being overturned? by the rest of the country. Right, right. So, you know, how, how much progress has been made towards the goals and, you know, did it look like New York was capable of achieving the, mm -hmm. the, the less ambitious goal <laughs> than the one set in the Green New Deal? Sure. Um, it, for, first, it is so critical to New York that, that we push for meeting uh, climate change goals. You know, we're already seeing sea level rise you know, we're seeing pole, melting polar ice caps. Those are serious issues, and that. But that's why we need a national and need a global plan. And New York achieving its goals by itself doesn't make much difference if the rest of the country is going in the other direction. Um, so that's that's concern. And you also said New York is already the lowest uh, emitting well, state. Is the lowest it emitting per, capita. Yeah. per capita basis? Per capita, so, I mean, right. New York because of the size of the New York economy. We're still in the top 10, right. but we're ninth out of 10 in that top 10 category and one of the few states that saw significant reductions um, over this 25-year period that we've been talking about. Um, looking at the goals that the governor is, uh, has been talking about most recently in the Green New Deal, the interesting thing is that the, the really critical goals are 
the 40% reduction of greenhouse gases by 2030 and the 80% reduction by 2050. He hasn't touched those endpoints. He's instead focused on uh, the percent of electricity, electricity coming yeah. from renewables. And where the goal was 50% by 2030, he's now set 100% by 2050. Um, the, the, 20, the 2030 goal of 50% was a, a serious challenge. The, the state hadn't really laid out how it was getting to, the, to that goal of 50% by 2030. You know, with, the, with the initiatives announced, with the projects that are already on the boards, there was still going to be a significant shortfall. Um, for, and, and what's been announced is that there's, there's 4,300 megawatts of land-based wind upstate uh, proposed. Now, not all of that's going to get built, but it's on the books, so I counted it. Um, the state has, through NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, has announced that it's going to be doing solicitations for 2,400 megawatts of offshore wind, and they've already issued their first 800 megawatt RFP for that. To get to the, to the goal of 50% by 2030, the state would essentially need to do another an additional 2,400 megawatts of offshore wind to reach the goal, and the state hadn't announced that until now when the governor announced that he was going to, his target now was 9,000 megawatts of offshore wind by 2035. So he quadrupled the goal and he added five years to that. Right. So, so, so for people listening who maybe didn't get all those numbers, the, the key is that the governor has made a slightly more aggressive goal for shifting the electricity usage, where, where electricity is coming from and wants to increase the goals for it coming from wind right. power. And is there anything else that's part of that or is it really so dependent on wind? It, it's primarily dependent on wind. He's also announced uh, a target of, I believe, 6,000 megawatts of distributed solar, which sounds like rooftop solar primarily, not, not large utility scale installations. Um, Solar produces a megawatt. A megawatt is not a megawatt is not a megawatt when you compare them from the different sources. A, uh, a natural gas plant that can can operate twenty four hours a day can produce a lot more energy than a, a solar pro a rooftop solar project, which really is only producing power from. You know, it, it only starts producing power at, as the sun gets a little bit over the horizon and it stops you know, as the sun starts to set. Um, and, and wind is also an intermittent resource. Offshore wind is a more reliable resource, right. but, um, but wind in particular is also a seasonal resource. So we can get a lot of energy out of wind uh, at certain times of the year and not as much, um, you know, in particularly, uh, we don't see as much offshore wind produced in the summertime which right now is when we have our peak. And so, so then we have to back up that wind with, and backstop it with something else. But if we only looked at the projected energy produced and we somehow assume that we're going to be able to fill in either through storage or by burning uh, fossil fuels um, to meet it, the, 
the plan that the governor had and the, that was laid out by NYSERDA and the Public Service Commission to get to 2030 still looked like there was a shortfall. And now, now, now we've set the bar even higher. But with so, giving so, themselves a little more time. Right. <laughs> a little more time and, you know, and, and yeah, it's, 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 it's a long enough ways out that somebody else will be there to explain why it didn't get met. So part of the issue, right, is that there weren't enough projects in the pipeline to, to get to the goal? Well, not only are there not enough projects in the pipeline, there's only one project that's actually contracted for at this point, which is the Deepwater Wind Project, which has been contracted for on Long Island by LIPA. And that's just 90 megawatts. So remember, we've been talking about adding 2,400 megawatts, maybe adding... 4,800 megawatts or 9,000 megawatts. And it's encountered its share of challenges. I was going to say, it, yes. It has, it has been challenged. It, uh, it started off with pretty decent support out on the east end of Long Island. The project was recently sold by the original developer to uh, a European firm, and they announced that they were going to increase the output of the plant and lower the price. Um, that has run into some opposition from some of the legislators who supported the project initially because they feel there hasn't been sufficient transparency on what this power increase is and what the price drop is. And, and getting information on the prices of these projects is very challenging. They're, they're essentially treated as trade secrets. So even, even though the contracting agencies like Long Island Power Authority and NYSERDA are government agencies and subject to freedom of information uh, requests, uh, they are able to take advantage of the trade secret uh, exclusion. And so seeing what the actual price to be paid is, is a little bit challenging. Right. So, but th this is sort of, you know, we, we've um, been hearing a lot about, you know, the governor setting his mind to something and being <laughs> able to do it, right? So I think this is not an area where the governor can say, okay, we need a lot more offshore wind and kind of apply the same muscle he has and say some of the mega projects of the MTA to do that because they do run into significant challenges with environmental issues, with local opposition to the footprint of these plans and a lot of other things. So the, the NIMBY issues are, are alive and healthy on this, which is partly... Um, what kind of has slowed process towards achieving that, that yeah, goal. And, and I think a lot of folks are surprised by some of the NIMBY issues with the offshore wind. The, maybe 10 years ago uh, at LIPA, we proposed an offshore wind project um, that was off, uh, off Jones Beach. And it ran into opposition because it was within three miles of the beach and it was going to be visible from a lot of the, the homes there. And that opposition eventually coalesced and actually uh, stopped that project mm -hmm. from going forward. The new projects are 25 and 30 miles offshore. They are over the horizon. So even as tall as these new projects are, and they're, they're twice the height of the Empire State Building, um, they are, they're, they're not visible. But there's still concern. There's, there's opposition from uh, fishermen's groups who are concerned about uh, an impact on the fisheries. There's uh, generally they're staying out of the shipping lanes, so that's not that doesn't seem to be a source of opposition. But there's also concern about bringing the transmission lines for these projects in and and where those transmission lines are going to be built. And that's one of the other things that needs to be addressed is adding the uh, transmission network and reinforcing the transmission grid to bring in all this power. So. 
there's still a lot of open issues. So despite the transparency, I mean, one of the things that you did in the paper, Seth, that I think was really interesting was, you know, you sort of said, okay, there isn't a lot of information, but if we were to take what we know about deep water and play this scenario out about how it it would impact the costs for ratepayers, um, you know, it, it's something significant. Right, right. So the with the information that was available, the, the analysis that – uh, I came to was that if we were to meet the 50% renewable goal by 2030, that could raise uh, electric rates in New York State by about 10%. There are a lot of assumptions in there, but right. but I, I felt comfortable that that was a, a real risk. What it means if we go to 100% uh, by 2040 uh, is, you know, back of the envelope, it sounds like at least tripling that number and, and right. maybe more just because of other impacts on the way the system will have to be operated. Right. And, you know, so some people may hear that and say, well, I think it's worth it. Um, but there are others, I think, especially lower income folks who, you know, are already struggling to make ends meet where that increase would actually be very significant. And so the question you could sort of raise is say, okay, go- goals are important. Is there a better and more cost-effective way to get to the goals? And that was sort of your primary question, and you thought about it a lot, and you developed these great principles that I want you to tell the people about, um, about how it could be done in a, in a sort of better way. Thanks. And, and you're right, sort of coming back to the transparency issue, I think being clear about what the cost impacts of these things are is really important. You know, what's interesting is the way numbers can get used on things when with deep water, because it's only 90 megawatts, um, part of the presentation on Long Island was, you know, this is only going to raise bills by a dollar per customer for the typical customer, which is fine because, but that's because it's only 90 megawatts. When you start scaling it up to being half of the energy supply, it starts to really cut in. And that, that, that hasn't been, um, out there. So, Thinking about the uh, the principles that um, that we talked about in the paper, um, it is starting with prioritizing cost-effective options. Taking a look on an economy-wide basis and not just at the electric power sector, because at this point the electric power sector only represents 16% of the state's greenhouse gases. So there's been inordinate attention on cutting the electric power sector. It's, it's always been the easy target. It's a stationary source. It's not, uh, it's not owned directly, personally by people. It's not, it's not your car that, you know, when, when the price of gas goes up, you get mad about that. You know, this is, this is the electric utility is raising the rates. It's not something that the state is doing to you in a way. But, but even if we eliminate all the greenhouse gas emissions from the electric power sector, that drops us 16%. Um, that still leaves a huge gap to getting to the 40% by 2030 and the 80% reduction by 2050. So that's why uh, th- that's why I talk a lot in the paper about meeting these goals on an economy-wide basis. Transportation by itself is a third of greenhouse gas uh, production, and transportation has gone up uh, 25% from 1990 to 2015. In greenhouse gas production, and so that that's a serious problem. That that's something we really have to address. So, uh, start off by looking at the cost-effective options within each sector. What is the, what gets you the most bang for the buck? The the largest greenhouse gas reduction for dollars spent. 
the next principle is that to use markets, markets really work. And, and that, that's where we get into the economy-wide uh, concept. In the electric sector, we've been using, we have a lot of different power markets. First, we're, we're served by a power pool and power is dispatched by the New York Independent System Operator. Um, and all these, all these power plants across the state bid in each day on what price they, they're looking for for electricity. They add to that a cost of their carbon reduction with, because New York is part of the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is an association of nine states in the Northeast that are working to reduce greenhouse gases. And they've been cutting greenhouse gas emissions since I think 2009 by two and a half percent per year. Uh, it's been effective, it's worked. And the electric power sector in New York has cut greenhouse gas emissions over 40% uh, in this study period. So, so, so that's, that's been significant and, and Reggie continues to work and it's a great model. Now it, it's been helped by the fact that we've had um, the natural gas fill in, but natural gas filled in partly because there was a demand for cleaner uh, resources. That's where the market moved. That's where the market moved, right. Markets respond. And, that, and that's sort of an important thing to think about with, with markets, which is when you put a price on something, you get, on, in the short term, you get an immediate response in, on, the supply, on the purchasing and on the buying side. On the long term, you begin to unlock innovation. When people see that there is a persistent price advantage from one approach to another, technologies fill in. And so we can't predict all that right now. But just quickly, is that where governments can move markets when they announce goals like this and they shift policy around things like energy? This could cross a variety of, of sectors and issues, but when the governor announces certain goals, that... So, so and that, that, that it, it's a question of how do, how do they... You know, where do they intervene in the market? So they intervene in the initial market structure, which is how how pricing is figured out, or do they or do they become very prescriptive and say this is the only solution available? <clears throat> um, years ago, I uh, my, my master's thesis was actually on uh, nuclear power regulation in the U.S. and West Germany, and what I discovered uh, during that time was that regulation in the in the US is more results had been more results based and in Europe it's much more targeted and prescriptive and and the Europeans are slowly moving away from that they're getting less prescriptive but the US seems to be getting more prescriptive and and saying this is the way you'll meet the goal you know you know we, we talked about a goal and the, and the goal that New York has is 40% greenhouse gas reductions by 2030 and 80% by 2050. But now the, but, but instead of saying, now let's figure out the ways that we get there, you know, let's let the market find those solutions and give them the right signals. Instead, the, the governor has set specific targets for specific technologies and, and, and honestly also omitted certain technologies. We're not seeing, we're not opening ourselves up to more hydropower and we're not and the plans as laid out right now are really new york centric plans 
and and that that's a problem. We should be looking at the biggest market possible, making ourselves open to wherever there's cheap energy. It's probably too expensive to import wind from the Midwest, but that should be in the mix. That should be considered. There are actually projects that are looking to bring power from from Nebraska to the southeast, and they're building and they're proposing to build high voltage uh, DC transmission lines to do that. That that ought to be competing uh, in New York. And so that gets us back to another one of your recommendations, which is partnering with other states and even Canada, which would seem to make a lot of sense given the the border uh, that is shared in certain places. Um, we're in our last few minutes here. want you to definitely get to some of your other recommendations. Just for listeners, we're in our last couple of minutes here with Seth Hulkauer, uh, who's the principal at Strategic Energy Advisory Services. Seth has been laying out a lot of information here for us about energy and energy policy and consumption and usage and where we're heading in New York um, with some great context nationally and internationally. And now returning to some of your recommendations in terms of uh, New York policy. Sure. So um, looking at extending cap and trade regimes to the to the entire economy, um, you know, you sort of taking the Reggie model and expanding that to the whole economy uh, as a possibility. And actually, in his state of the state address, the governor has proposed a climate action council which has a broad mission, but included in that is working on a regional, multi-state, all-economy-wide cap-and-trade program. So it's great that the governor has endorsed that. Love to see it happen. The other way to put a price signal in is very simply a, a carbon tax. Um, carbon taxes are generally anathema. The, the interesting thing is that a couple of Reagan Republicans, George Schultz and James Baker, both of whom have been secretaries of Treasury and secretaries of State, are actively promoting a, a carbon tax at this point. So you know, there, there's somebody out there trying to run interference uh, to get that done. So that would really be a key part of it. We talked about trying to bring in uh, hydropower from Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, New York established a policy back in 2004 that said that uh, any, any new hydro that required a new dam uh, wouldn't count as a new renewable energy resource. The opposition seems to be based on some old resource research suggesting that uh, dams actually can create uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And, that, and that's true in tropical zones where all the, uh, all the trees and everything that got, that got buried when the area was flooded begin to off-gas. Um, it's really not an issue for northern climes and... It's really something that we ought to revisit. At this point, honestly, there are entrenched interests who don't want to see uh, hydropower competing against offshore wind. So speaking of, let's talk about the last kind of two controversial ones. Um, so one being nuclear mm -hmm. um, and the other being um, limiting gas capacity. Sure. So um, the nuclear power plant fleet in, in New York uh, produces close to 30% of the state's electricity. Um, several of the plants are nearing the end of their operating licenses. Um, some of those licenses could be extended, but that that's a regulatory process that New York has so far indicated it's not interested in uh, seeing go forward. 
But the nuclear plants, <clears throat> even though they're very cheap to operate on a day-to-day -day basis, are having trouble competing against natural gas because natural gas has gotten that cheap. Um, and the state has recognized that and established through the clean energy standard a zero emission credit regime. And with those SECs, the nuclear plants are competing, they're continuing to stay in the mix. But right now, the, the ZEC program expires in 2029, and there's every reason to expect that the whole nuclear fleet shuts down uh, at that point because it can't compete any longer. If we lose that, we essentially lose a third of our energy supply. That'll be made up by burning more natural gas to meet the demand. And that will wipe out all the savings that we've seen so far uh, in the electric power sector from, for greenhouse gas reductions. So that's, that's a serious issue, and the state really needs to think about ways to continue the benefits of the, uh, of the nuclear plants. The, the other issue uh, is supporting pipelines to bring in natural gas. Um, New York has been very effective in preventing some natural gas pipelines from being built in the state. Generally, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has preemption over states in, in citing transmit, gas transmission lines. But in the case of uh, New York, New York has been able to stop these projects going forward because of water permits. And New York should absolutely be protecting our water uh, resources. But at this point, they're keeping any natural gas, new natural gas pipelines from coming in. And it's gotten so serious that the gas utilities downstate are actually looking at um, non-transmission alternatives, which include things like trucking in compressed natural gas and liquefied natural gas. Now, I don't know how many trucks, truckloads that's going to be coming into all these neighborhoods, but it's, it's going to be a huge number. And people are going to be very concerned about seeing these these kinds of trucks. And I mean, as a practical matter, it's also counterproductive when you have homeowners or businesses, you know, large buildings who are burning dirty fuels and want to convert to gas and now can't because Con Ed is saying or the utility is saying, well, we, we can't actually, we can't service you. Um, so both kind of, in a sense, this policy and the nuclear counterproductive to the overall goals. Yep. And was there something else you were going to add? No, and I think that's it on the on the pipelines. Look, the, I mean, the other thing on the pipelines is that this is going up to the Supreme Court. Um, the pipeline developers are fighting, uh, you know, through FERC and appealing the decisions by New York State. They're going to bring it up, and so this is going to be decided at a um, at a higher political pay grade than on <laughs> a higher legal yeah. pay grade. So I have questions on the pipelines, but we're going to leave it there. We ha we, we've taken up too much of your time, but we really appreciate it. And this was a very interesting discussion. I just want to add, you know, one of the other things that you note is just the sort of very simple principle of focusing on mass transit, fighting congestion, you know, some of the things that are certainly being talked about with congestion pricing and things like that, but, it, you know, isn't that much about revolutionizing how the energy sector works. It's much more nuts and bolts get people out of cars, whatever cars and buses there are on the roads, keep them moving. You know, these are things that, that have a significant impact. And congestion pricing is a price signal. That, sure. That's trying to shift behavior. That's by right. By just creating a price signal and letting people find the solutions. 
and finding ways to improve the, the subway and bus system. We're, we're losing ridership at a time the city's population is growing, and it's because service has been bad. Yeah. And the MTA says that, you know, admits that themselves. We need to see investment in, in the MTA to improve that, to get ridership back, and get people out of the ride-hailing services. Congestion pricing is a green <laughs> policy. We'll leave it there, Seth. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Bye. Thank you.